Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. First up, I want to thank our supporting partners who make the podcast possible, and today that's Magura, Leia and Santa Cruz. Until I tried Magura brakes, I'd struggled to find a brake that felt powerful enough and that I was able to maintain the performance of over time. The Magura MT7s changed that. The power is amazing and that power is also really easy to meter. They're the only brakes I've ever been able to keep working just as well as when I first fitted them. They've needed minimal maintenance, the bleed is easy to do and the pad life with the performance pads has been excellent. Since fitting them, I've not once been left wanting for more braking performance. In addition to all that, Magura have their customised your brake programme, which means you can get the brakes set up perfectly for you. There are multiple options for lever shape, pad compound, disc and some aesthetic changes to perfectly match it with your ride. I found that the perfect setup for me is the standard performance pads and the HC wide reach lever which was designed with Loic Bruni and I find works really well for me. Also Magura have just launched some seriously incredible technology alongside Bosch providing the first ever anti-lock braking system for mountain bikes. If you've not already seen that technology in the news then go and check it out. It's pretty mind-blowing what they've achieved with that system. You can check out the entire range of Magura brakes, the Customize Your Brake program and their brand new ABS system over at Magura.com. Liat's founder, Dr. Chris Liat, has a short message for you about their helmet technology. Hi, this is Dr. Liat here of the Liat Lab. You will notice that all our Liat helmets are equipped with Liat's patented 360 turbine technology. So what is this? Liet has long since recognized that not all helmets are created equal and that ideally helmets we wear should cater for high velocity impacts, rotational accelerations, as well as lower velocity impacts. So to repeat those three impact scenarios again, high velocity impacts, rotational accelerations, and lower velocity impacts. Our helmets, shells, and EPS liners are optimized for high impact magnitudes, as are most helmets. But Liet's innovative multiple 360 turbine additions are strategically placed to do more than helmets without. Our turbines deform to dampen the effects of rotational acceleration. This is the component that often produces severe traumatic brain injuries. Uniquely to lower velocity impacts that may cause concussion and the long-term effects of these multiple lower speed impacts are also protected with our 360 turbine technology. If you want to check out Layout's full range of 360 turbine equipped helmets, then you can do that over at layout.com. That's L-E-A-T-T dot com. And get hold of them at your local bike shop or online. While you're here, don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. There's buttons to help you get that done at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. Merch is available if you want to support the show. That's over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. The second issue of our print project, Downtime EP, is available now. It's packed full of great writing and amazing photography from Mountain Biking's Best, and it takes some of the topics and guests from the podcast and turns them into something beautiful to read and cherish. You can get your copy or an annual subscription over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP. All the links you need for all of this stuff are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. You can also get in touch and give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook by heading to at Downtime Podcast. This episode is also supported by Santa Cruz Bikes and today I'm going to be getting some insight into their industrial design and product management with Jack Russell. Jack is a trained engineer who's worked his way into the bike industry holding roles at both Kona and Santa Cruz. 
Jack's passion for speed and engineering mean that he's owned rally cars, he currently owns a plane, and he's passionate about making the best bikes on the planet. We sat down to find out more about his background, along with chatting about his work at Santa Cruz in both industrial design and more recently as a product manager for their e-bike range. This is a great insight into the thought that goes into the products that we get to ride. So, without further ado, here's Jack Russell. Jack Russell, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Great, thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, we're sat in a not particularly nice hotel room uh, that I've managed to procure in uh, Frankfurt for Eurobike. Um, you've had a, a few few weeks over in Europe now. What have you been up to? Yeah, I've been here since uh, mid-July and um, really I'm just trying to ride bikes in Morzine as much as I can. But uh, <laughs> ostensibly I was here for um, doing a bunch of uh, research uh, with our European team, hanging out with those guys checking into the markets here and uh now going to Eurobike and Very trying good. to squeeze in some plenty of laps while i can good work oh and we saw the tour de france uh just uh yesterday and the day before that was really cool never, ah, nice never seen that before so it, that was really awesome did it go through morzine we were trying to get to chatel we got to morjean and didn't get any farther we kind of okay. got stuck because the road is closed but uh man it was really cool to see you in person you know i'm not much of a road biker well i'm fully not a road biker <laughs> and uh it was kind of wild seeing something you've always seen on TV and in person you just really get a sense of the scale of it so much more like formations of helicopters and like hundreds of cars yeah, yeah. before and after the Peloton. It, it was wild. So that was really cool. So we yeah. saw that. And the speed they go at is pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, it was well. funny. So we were actually there on e-bikes, um, riding lifts on e-bikes. <laughs> Always funny. But uh, we, we took e-bikes because we knew the lifts would be closed when it ended and we had to get from Morjean back to Morzine. Uh, if you've never been there, that's like three valleys over, I think. So it's a fair amount of riding to get back. Um, so we brought e-bikes and then we rode, like after we were in Morjean, we were 10K from the finish in Chatel, and we rode sort of like the rest of the stage on our way back to get to Chatel to get back to Morzine. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, on an e-bike or cruising up the road, it, well, I have my bike in miles an hour, but like, you know, cruising up the road at like 20K, say, relatively like, and and the guys passed us on the same uphill. It was uphill there when they, and you know, it was 10K from the end. So they're like, you know, pretty tired. And they passed us at like, their average speed was 30K. And then we're going up on an e-bike at 20K and it would have blown <laughs> by us. Like, it's just like that after having just ridden 150K and it's just like, holy crap, like unreal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something you don't see on TV. I kind of like seeing F1 and or MotoGP in real life is like that you don't get a sense of the speed on TV. Yeah. And then you see it in real life and you're like, holy smokes. Like going to a downhill World Cup, right? It doesn't, yeah. It, oh, yeah. It exactly. doesn't translate. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. It's way faster than it even looks. And on TV, it looks pretty quick these days too. So yeah. Yeah. Impressive so that, was stuff. A, that was cool. Cool, man. Well, before we get in, into your kind of career in bikes, let's get a bit of history here. Um, first up, tell us a little bit about how bikes came into your life. What's your early memories of bicycles yeah it's funny you asked that i've been asked that before and like i i don't know i just started riding bikes when i was like a little kid and i just kept riding them and <laughs> i feel like i other people are like oh yeah when i'm in college i got into mountain biking or whatever i'm like i don't know like i was like a little kid and i rode bikes and then i became a bigger kid and i still rode them <laughs> and then i feel like a lot of people get their driver's license and they stop riding bikes at least in the u.s and i got my driver's license and i like kept riding bikes and still ride them <laughs> so. where, where did you grow up 
Uh, yeah, good question. I grew up in good question because I grew up in Bellingham, Washington. Uh, okay, um, I'm not originally from there, but I moved there when I was like eight years old or whatever. Uh-huh. And so it's kind of hard not to be into riding bikes when you're from Bellingham. Uh, with that said, when I was like a teenager and stuff, the riding scene was like you knew everyone who rode there. The riding scene was like a few dozen people, and we just rode on like old motocross uphills. Like we rode down them, you know, there wasn't really mountain bike trails specifically back then, but uh-huh. you know, since then it's just an insane scene there. Um, but yeah, that's probably a big part of it. If I grew up in like Texas, I probably wouldn't be mountain biking. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. And what were you like racing or just riding for fun? Like how does that all fit Yeah, together? no, I always race for fun. You know, like I, I got into BMX at like, you know, when I was kind of like in high school and did that. Or like, you know, like dirt jump, not like racing. And uh, I did get into downhill racing later. It was maybe when I was like in my mid-20s, I got into downhill racing. Uh Mostly because all my friends were doing it. It was just like a fun way to hang out with them. Because at that point, I was living in a different city than most of my bike friends. So we'd all kind of meet together at the races, which is great. But like, I always sucked at racing. And then like for me, as someone who sucked, like... You know, you spend like a day driving and you're like there for two or three days and a day driving home and you get a total of, I don't know, two hours on the bike in like three minutes on Sunday. And I'm like, I could have just gone to Whistler and ridden my bike all day (laughs) instead of riding my bike for three minutes and driving home for six hours. So I don't know that that's racing didn't last long for me. Did it just a couple of years or whatever. Fair enough. So yeah, I mean, it makes total sense the uh, the Bellingham connection and riding bikes. What about the engineering side? Like, when did you start to show interest in that? Yeah, I was like, so yeah, funny story. Uh, when I was like in high school, I remember like really being into. I was like super into bikes in high school. Like, just like lived it and breathed it. And then I was like, I just want to go to college to like do bike stuff. So it seems like engineering is appropriate for that. And then so I just did engineering in college just because I wanted to do bike stuff or like design bike stuff. Yeah. Like I was already like tinkering with like making my own bits and stuff in high school and like just wanted to get deeper into that. So I did engineering for my undergraduate degree and then uh, had like sort of some lame, boring engineering jobs after that. <laughs> and it was like, oh, this isn't what I had in mind. And then so... I actually realized what industrial design is what I wanted to do, which I actually had a really good industrial design program at the college I went to. I just like thought engineering would be the thing to do. So I actually went back to school to get an engineering degree uh, later in my like mid twenties. And then after having finished that, I got a job designing like kind of like iPhone cases and stuff like that. Uh And I worked there for six months and I was like pretty keen to get a job in the bike industry during that time as an industrial designer or an engineer. And then, um, after working there for like six months, I got a job at Kona. So that was how I broke into the bike industry. Interesting. So you've, you've maybe glossed over something saying they were boring engineering jobs, but were they not in motorsport? No, I worked at, uh, Oh, actually I did work at a cool motorsports company. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> the main boring engineering job was just like, I worked at Daimler, like their U S office in Portland. Uh-huh. And that was just like, you know, pushing pixels all day before that i worked at a really cool motorsport company called brambo motorsports um that was ostensibly going to make a supercar um but they never really did that but then we actually built the ariel adams for the u.s so ariel adams this little like british race well not really a race car it's like a race car inspired sort of i don't know what you call it giant go-kart thing yeah 
Um, I know, I know and the one you mean. So we built them in the U.S., but they were actually the ones we built in the U.S. are all sort of like redesigned and re-engineered by that company I worked for, and I designed a ton of stuff on that car, and that was a really cool job um, working for them. Um, so I did do that, but then that company kind of faded out. You know, I think there's a lot of companies like that do cool stuff like that that don't last very long. So, so unfortunately, that's how that went. <laughs> Fair enough. And that that passion for cars is more than just work for you, right? I hear rumors of rally cars and yeah, yeah. I uh, yeah, I did do some stage rally. Um, stage rally is really fun and it's really cool. I had a buddy who did stage rally from college actually. Um, and he, I was able to borrow his car in like a one day event and then was like, oh, I got to do this. And, uh, I actually went through two rally cars. I had a Mazda 323 GTX at first, which very few people probably know what that is, but it's a pretty sweet car. Yeah. Um, and mine is really nicely prepped too, um, with really expensive dampers. And then, uh, the problem with a four wheel drive turbo rally car that you literally can't buy parts for, like you have to make them. <laughs> If you break something, is it's kind of like kind of difficult to rally that car. I mean, like you literally can't get parts of that. And car. you are going to break things. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so I had that car for a bit, and I just rallied it. I think I just did one like official, like one multi-day stage rally in it. And then I got a Mark One Rabbit, or I suppose a Golf, um, in Europe. Um, and I bought that car prepped as well, and that was a really nice car, and it had done a lot of rallies, and it was really well sorted. I think the thing with rally cars is nice to buy a car that's already prepped and done a lot of rallies because then everything's already broken. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the Golf is really sweet, and and uh, that was a really nice car. It's front wheel drive, non turbo, so it's a lot easier to maintain. And front wheel drive rally cars are pretty rad because actually, kind as much fun it is is to drive a rear wheel drive rally car. Front wheel drive rally cars, you just keep your right foot planted all the time. And you just left foot brake, and that's kind of like your e brake, and it makes them kind of fun and easy to drive and easier to drive fast because um, you're not always dealing with like severe oversteer like a rear drive car so that was a cool car but it's just trying to do stage rally in the u.s it's just like you just need to tow your car across the country multiple times a season <laughs> and it's just like uh, it's really really hard to try to like have a job and do stage rally and do more than one event a year so Basically, my rally car was just a money pit, and I was never really using it. And uh, my my mom's husband is really into. He's like a big gearhead guy. He's really into cars, and I was talking to him about it once. He's like, you know, you should sell that rally car. And I was like, yeah, probably should. But like, you know, I hate to like not have like a a loud thing <laughs> that you drive fast. You know? Yeah. Um, like, I don't really want to, like, drive fast on the street in a street car. It's not really cool, in my opinion. So I was like, yeah, you know, I want to have, like, some cool race car or something to, like, waste my money on. And then he he was always into aviation. Um, he never got his pilot's license because he's colorblind, which now you could. But, at the you know, at his age, when he was younger, you couldn't get a pilot's license when you're colorblind. And he always had a bunch of pilot buddies and stuff. And he was like, well, maybe you should get your pilot's license instead of doing rally. <laughs> and then, you know, you could have like a loud thing that goes fast. And I was like, hey, that's a really good idea. <laughs> so, I, so I went and got my pilot's license instead and uh, bought an airplane. And the deal was that I had to sell the rally car. I couldn't have an airplane and a rally car, <laughs> according to the old lady. Yeah, that and, feels uh, a little excessive. And uh, so... Had I known like how much money and time and studying there was involved in getting a pilot's license, I for sure would not have done that. 
but like I was totally, I didn't know the first thing about flying. I was like totally naive about it. And I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds cool. <laughs> and so in retrospect, I'm glad I did it, but I for sure would not have done it how, how much I knew of it, if I knew how much of a commitment it was, but that's how the whole aviation thing got started. Amazing. So do you still own the plane? Yeah, I do. I, I've actually gone through, uh, I have on my second airplane now, which is a pretty nice airplane, I have to say. Um, but um, right now it's all torn apart. We're, do, we're doing the full motor overhaul right now. So um, we tore it apart. Me and my mechanic buddy tore, it, tore the motor out of the plane and tore it down as much as you can take a motor apart in the end of May. And it'll probably be a couple months before it goes back together. Uh-huh. Um, so trying to do as much as I can myself that's legal um, to try to save money because it's quite an expensive thing to rebuild, say, yeah. rebuild a motor. But um, yeah, the airplane I'm flying now is a Mooney Ovation 2, an M20R is the airframe. Um, some funny things about airplane motors are it's got a 550 cubic inch motor, which is like eight and a half liters, I think. Uh-huh. And it makes 270 horsepower which is kind of pathetic for yeah, such a giant motor. Much, yeah. um, and it redlines at 2,500 RPM. Yeah. Right? Because it's like the prop is directly connected to the crank so that there's no gearbox, so it's super slow. And yeah, the pistons are like, I don't know, five inches around. And <laughs> this stroke is at least six inches or something. Yeah. So they're kind of fun. Oh, and single cam, uh, push rod motor. Super simple. You know, like kind of like 1930s. Yeah, air cooled design. So, yeah, they're funny. Oh, and magnetos too, so that you can't advance the timing. They're they're quite old. The airplane motors are pretty funny, like kind of ancient technology. Robust. But they don't break. Yeah, and that's the idea for sure. So, how, what do you use it for? Like to go into the pub, or how, wh- why? Uh, mostly wasting money, but um, <laughs> it is helpful. To, actually, I do take it on some bike trips, like go up to Bellingham from Santa Cruz. Yeah, uh, I like flying it down to Kernville. It's a really cool zone in Southern California to ride bikes. I've flown down there a couple of times to ride, and they have an airport really close to the riding zone, so you don't need a car. Um, flown to Tahoe to ride bikes. Fly to Tahoe to ski. That's Amazing. Like How many bikes and riders could you fit in? Two bikes and two people is about yeah. all it fits. It's got four seats, but you got to take the back seats out to yeah to fit uh to bikes and it's a real pain in the butt to put bikes in you got to take the handlebars off but <laughs> it's just oh. like having a small car it's literally like if you had a, like a two-door hatchback car yeah and you had to put two bikes in it but you couldn't put them through the hatch <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what it's like <laughs> excellent sounds tricky yeah cool so. though that's amazing to be able to go and fly to places like that yeah it's pretty fun yeah be fun nice i like it so yeah coming back to the the career path then i guess so you said you uh you always wanted to get into the bike industry how did that opportunity at kona come about in the end yeah um well i was putting my feelers out and like you know i there's a big riding community in Bel- in bellingham and like i knew a lot of people in bellingham who worked in the bike industry at various companies and I was kind of like letting everyone know that I was trying to do that. And uh, really just like a friend of a friend kind of, I, I had met Chris Mandel before, like maybe once. And then a friend of a friend told me that he was looking to hire a designer. Um, and then I got in touch with them and the rest is history. So it really was like, I guess you could say like networking um, kind of through just knowing people riding, um, which I imagine is probably the best way to get a job in the industry if you're looking for one like be somewhere where there's a lot of industry stuff and know a lot of industry people and they'll probably think of something for you 
But yeah, Chris Mandel at the time was a product manager at um, Kona and got a job through him and worked really closely with him. And we did all the original process bikes at Kona together, me and him. Yeah, because Kona weren't in a great spot back then, were they? They were sort of struggling a bit for sales and the brand, the brand image maybe had kind of Yeah, they were still, at the time, they were still doing Magic Link bikes. It was uh-huh. actually a really cool opportunity. And I think me and Chris really enjoyed it because at the time they were still doing Magic Link bikes and we kind of Chris hired me and he was the one with like the big idea to kind of like do some really cool modern bikes and like turn things around there. And it was kind of like a blank slate. Like we knew we didn't want to do Magic Link bikes anymore and that's all we knew. And we looked at, you know, like multi-link suspension and single pivot and really anything. And it was just like really rad, you know, it was just like, let's just make the best thing we can. And if we really like riding it in Bellingham, then like maybe other people like riding it in other places, (laughs) which, you know, it's kind of our ethos at Santa Cruz now. Like, you know, if we really are stoked on this bike, maybe other people will like riding it too. Yeah. Rather than, you know, like, what are the, like, let's go figure out what people want and then make what they ask for more, more going at the other end of it like that. Um, but yeah, so we, that's where we came up with the, those process bikes. And at the time we made the process 111, which is our, was our 29 or short travel version, which was one by, and it was one by before one by SRAM drive trains existed. Uh-huh. So it was a one by bike with an 1136 cassette which was pretty weird and risky at the time. And, you know, it was like, people were like, you know, it was like, is this going to be a thing? Like, (laughs) you know, you can't really pedal up a hill. I mean, you know, the best you could do back then was like a 32 front and 36 rear. And like, you got to be pretty fit to pedal that up a hill. And I don't know, maybe no one's going to buy these. And that bike really kind of went a little bit viral, I guess you could say. And a lot of people thought it was really cool and that created a lot of momentum. At the time, the other process bikes were still two by. I remember it was funny because I was thinking about that the other day, and I was like, "Man, my chain used to fall off all the time, <laughs> two by, like all the time." Like this one trail in Bellingham, I always e-bike now because it's like a pretty savage climb. I used to always, you know, pedal my two two by. I guess I suppose it was two by ten, not two by eleven. Two by. I used to always pedal that two by eleven bike up there, you know, with the granny gear, so it wasn't the worst thing to pedal up there. And then I'd ride down and my chain would fall off two or three times a run. And that was like normal and you just deal with it. And it's funny how things have changed. So. Definitely improved for sure. Yeah. yeah. How, so how did you, like from an industrial design perspective, then how did you approach that challenge, I guess, of getting Kona into a better position? Yeah. Um, like, let me think about that. I think we just really tried to use the design process and like, yeah, just try to do some research on what was out there and create like a coherent message of what we wanted to like do with the product line and, you know, just make, make sure everything made sense together between all the process bikes. Yeah. And, you know, like we, so we came up with these ideas like with the gearing, you know, we do a one by, for the short travel, uh, for, first of all, you know, where which models at the time were 29, 27.5, like which models would have which gearing, you know, from the short travel to the long travel. Um, then, you know, we had ideas like what to do with suspension. We wanted like really low standover on those bikes. They kind of had that like BMX look, the low standover. And then we wanted a really consistent leverage rate in the suspension, uh-huh. um, which I think was kind of a new idea back then. Like back then, a lot of people were doing really wacky things with their leverage rate. Um, 
and we just wanted to make it really as consistent as we could across the travel so the shock wouldn't have to do any weird stuff. And then we also got into doing long reaches on those bikes. This is, again, these. this is model year 14 that uh-huh. we were designing in calendar year 12. Yeah. Um, so this is ancient history. <laughs> um, but we also got into the long reach thing. And what was just funny, because I remember at the time, that's when Mondraker just started doing their uh, forward geometry thing yeah, with yeah. Fabian Burrell, who yeah. was a Kona writer before that. And Chris knew him from that. Yeah. And so, like, Chris kind of had, like, Fabian's, like, brain download from a little before and was into this whole uh, long reach thing, what Mondraker used the term for geometry. I remember at the time, though, Yeti was doing really long bikes, though. I remember looking at their geo charts back then, and, like, no one gave them credit for it, which I think was really funny. And, like, they didn't call it out in their marketing, which I think was also funny. (laughs) But in any case, that was another big uh, thing we tried to do with those bikes for for sure. Oh, and specking dropper posts. At the time, dropper posts weren't really specced. And doing shorter seat tubes that allowed you to run, at the time, a long 150 dropper post <laughs> um, and have a seat tube that could fit that. Um, yeah. Interesting. So it's almost like I'm just trying to think about the the sort of product management role versus the industrial design role. Some of those think, well, they sort of bridge across i guess right can you i guess maybe give people a bit of a feel for how what those two roles kind of are traditionally and then yeah i at least the way it works at kona and santa cruz the only two places i've worked at but i think it works like this most from what i hear from most brands is that the product managers kind of like define the the product strategy and what the product should be like so you know they'll put a list together of like we want to make a you know we think we should make a bronson and the the bike called the Bronson should have this much travel and like these types of parts on it and this wheel size and be used for this thing. And then so, you know, they kind of define the product in that way. And that's like what we did back then. And then sort of like the designers and engineers need to be like, okay, well, in that case, we're going to use this type of suspension system and we need this amount of tire clearance and like it needs to fit, you know, two by or, or not, you know, uh-huh. or the head tube should be this long because the bike will be used for these reasons or whatever. So, yeah. And then I think, you know, between product managers and designers, there's a lot of back and forth on, on that kind of stuff, like throughout the process. Got you. Makes sense. So things are going pretty good at Kona, but in 2015, you make a move across to Santa Cruz. How did that come about? Again, dream job for a lot of people that want to be in the industry. Santa Cruz seems to be a very well-respected brand. Yeah. uh, I just wanted to, ride bikes where it wasn't raining so much (laughs) i remember like doing product testing at kona with chris and it'd be like raining for days and then he'd be like we gotta test this shock and i'd be like dude but it's like raining and it's been raining for days and he'd be like but we have to get you know it's like wednesday and we have to give those guys feedback by thursday i'm like i really don't want to ride like it's not worth getting paid to ride bikes today (laughs) and like we'd still go and no all joking aside, the weather is quite a bit nicer in Santa Cruz. But um, actually, Santa Cruz kind of got in touch with me. And um, uh, it seemed like a cool opportunity at the time. I think, like, kind of did some cool stuff at Kona. And, like, it'd be cool to do something else and try a new challenge. Um, and so um, it was good timing, too, because my wife's job in Seattle kind of, like, sucked. So she's like, let's do it. Let's go to Santa Cruz. <laughs> I'll quit my job, too. And uh, it was cool. Like when I got, when I started, that was 
when the Nomad 3 was the, the cool bike at Santa Cruz. Yeah. And, um, you know, pretty soon after that, I think the first project I worked on at Santa Cruz uh, that I did from, from the beginning. Yeah, the first project I worked out at Santa Cruz that I started from the beginning that didn't come halfway in on was the Nomad 4, which was the first Santa Cruz with a shock attached to the lower link, uh-huh. which now all the bikes have that. Yeah. So it's cool timing to come because, you know, kind of right, like right when I started is we changed all our suspension around trying to make the bikes ride a lot better um, from that older style like Nomad 3 with a shock attached to the top tube and the upper link. Um, so that was cool to kind of like figure out like a new paradigm of sort of the frame design. And then, um, you know, it was pretty sweet to, des- I designed the V10 seven and the V10 six was done when I started working there. And, you know, it's super cool to get to the chance to design the V, you know, the V10. I mean, it's like the most legendary downhill bike, you know, like when I was working at Kona, that was the coolest bike and it yeah. still is the coolest bike and it's still the reigning world champions bike. And, uh, you know, I mean the common Sol is a fast downhill bike, the common Sol Supreme, but just the V 10 seven is like the one that'll end up in the museum, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, that was, that was pretty sweet. So, um, it's cool to get the opportunity to work on that. Yeah. What was it like working with, I guess you're involved with the team when it comes to product, uh, kind of the DH end of things. Wait, with, that, the, with the downhill team with syndicate yeah i didn't i didn't i haven't really worked with the syndicate so much uh-huh. like i think we we get a lot of their require like what they ask for is like distilled through um nick anderson our our head of design or head of engineering uh-huh. and then you know he kind of sorts through all of their feedback because we get a lot of feedback from the mechanics and the various writers and then he kind of like distills it all down to what we need to do exactly and then we go from there. So most of their feedback is on suspension performance. Yeah. Um, and not like so much like what the bike looks like or, or things like that. I, they definitely have feedback on geo too, but, um, you know, so it doesn't really impact what I do on the V 10 seven so much as the industrial designer. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, as industrial designer, then what are some of the, the bigger challenges that you have to work your way through? Like, yeah, I think it's it's tough. Like being an industrial designer in the bike industry, um, like you have to know as much about engineering the bike as the engineers do. Uh-huh. Because, you know, you'll want to try to do something and you kind of need to know if it'll work or not. You know, it's like, I think probably a much different problem than maybe designing like a chair, right? Because it's like the chair needs to hold your butt off the ground, but, you know, there's a million ways you can do that. Um, and you know the requirements are pretty simple and with a bike it's like you know you have all these hard points you're trying to connect together and then you have this geometry you're trying to work around and then the materials constrain you quite a bit as well Um, and you really have to know a lot about actually making things out of carbon to know Mm -hmm. what your idea is realistic or aluminum if you're doing aluminum and sort of like how the the loads go through the bike and all that stuff um because you know you can make like a really pretty sketch. I mean, everyone that's the easy part. The, the easy part is making like the pretty sketch. The hard part is like figuring out how, making a bike that can actually be made like that, um, for sure. And I think I I sometimes joke. I mean, you know, you're so close to it. I sometimes joke that carbon's like the worst material to make a bike out of. 
but aluminum's probably worse than that, and everything else is way worse. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess you get free control over a lot of the form with carbon. Yeah, right? I, I, that's what everyone thinks. Is it's like, oh, it's just molded, so you can just like do whatever you want. But actually, like carbon's pretty unhappy when you like smash it in the tight little corners and do like tight little feature lines with it. Uh-huh. Um, like carbon fibers themselves are not very flexible, uh, like relative to fiberglass. Say. Yeah. Um, like carbon fiber wants to be made into like an airplane wing, like a big homogenous, barely curved surface. It's yeah. like carbon fiber is very happy doing that. Uh-huh. And like trying to make like a pinner little tube with like little tight little corners is really tricky. So, I mean, I think that comes through in our bike design at Santa Cruz because we try not to do that as much as we can, because that just makes the carbon fiber unhappy. <laughs> we don't want to do that and we don't want to do that so um yeah it's it's not it's definitely not like oh yeah it's a molded bike just do some kind of crazy whatever you want and we'll just mold it i mean they will they can they'll the factory will figure out a way to do it but it won't make for the lightest strongest most efficient structure yeah um and you know i think you can see that on road bikes you know road bikes these days are what like 800 grams and they don't have a bunch of you know cool feature lines all over them um because they just can't afford the weight yeah so fair comment i guess it must have helped then having that like mechanical engineering side to you because there's often a a tension i think between engineering and design right because if you don't have that appreciation you can like you say you can easily create uh unnecessary challenges i guess from the engineering side of the organization yeah for sure and like it yeah it definitely and I have designed a fair amount of bikes, like all the bikes I did at Kona. I, I not only did the industrial design, but I also did the engineering side of it, went to the factories and got them made. Mm-hmm. And then I've done that on a couple of projects at Santa Cruz as well, which is always great to just, you know, play the other side of the, the court and understand what the constraints are there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, for sure. Super helpful. Like, you know, making it, like I said, making the pretty sketches like 1% of the work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Do you find it important to try and keep up with kind of the engineering and the manufacturing engineering side of things, right? Because capabilities are always growing, right? The way we can do things, the techniques we have are always expanding. Do you do you try and keep up to date with that so that you're always informed? Or Yeah, for sure. It's been tough with COVID, you know, because we can't go to Asia easily. But I mean, yeah, that's a big part of it. So like lately the last couple of years we have to do it a little bit more remotely than ideal but usually try to go to asia i don't know at least once a year if not more and kind of get the download from what those guys are working on for sure yeah um because those guys are on the pointy end of it over there for sure so yeah how would you describe like the i guess the evolution of santa cruz's like design language over the time that you were in that role because it's definitely it definitely has changed from the time you joined to where we're at now. Yeah, for sure. Like the Nomad, if you look at the Nomad 3 versus the Nomad 5, the current one, I mean, it's way different for sure. Yeah. Um, I do think the Nomad 5 came out really well. I'm really happy with how that bike turned out. Um, yeah, to me, that's one of the nicest bikes we've done for sure in terms of the design. Uh-huh. Um, what I always tried to do was do as little as possible. <laughs> this is my joke. But... I think that, you know, a lot of people, th- like, you could justify, like, industrial design by, like, well, you know, the industrial designer worked on it because there's a bunch of, like, swoopy stuff all over the bike. <laughs> and for me, I'm like, 
like what is the bike trying or like the frame specifically trying to do it's like trying to connect all these parts together and like let's do as little as possible to do that without like adding like in my opinion like decoration that doesn't isn't really need to be there yeah so that was kind of always a look that was kind of the the philosophy i was always going with and i think it makes sense because if you do that then you end up with a lighter stiffer structure Mm -hmm. ultimately by like deleting a bunch of the sort of decoration as you would call it and then i think our bikes they've always you know before i came along they've always kind of stood out with color and like the down tube logo yeah and so like let's lean harder into that than like you know like a swoopy tube specifically yeah um so yeah we just tried to like take a lot off and the way you actually do that in like a day-to-day basis is you actually end up doing concepts of all the things you could have done (laughs) and then you don't do them (laughs) so there's actually you know like pages and pages and like presentations and presentations of all the things that we could have done that we didn't do so there's a lot of that and then the other thing I, I really like to do at Santa Cruz with the design, um, and I should mention that we have another industrial designer, Jesse, who does awesome stuff, and he's definitely half of it for sure, not uh-huh. just me. Um, the other thing we like to do is, you know, I, I think it's a criticism like, oh, all the bikes look the same, but it's always funny to me when I'm like, well, like all like Porsches look the same. That That's sort of un- intentionally done. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that we do the same thing where it's like, yeah, I mean, like a uh, 5010 might be hard to tell apart from a Nomad if they were the same color and you didn't really know, but that's fairly intentional. <laughs> where where do you think the value comes from in that? Because you, like you say, you see it across all big brands really that they try and tie all the product together somehow. Like why is that? Yeah, I think that way you could, you know, you can just see someone in the lift line like 30 feet away and know know what that bike is. And then I think it's the same for Porsche. You mm-hmm. know, like you see a Porsche in traffic from 100 feet away and you know it's not like a Kia yeah. and or I I don't know some other car brand like maybe like Ferrari, right? Ferrari doesn't want to look like a Volkswagen from 200 feet away. For sure. But then all the Ferraris look the same and all right, like Audi's another good example. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and you know, I mean, uh, most well done consumer products are like that. It doesn't have to be a car, uh, you know, like an iPhone's trying to look like an iPhone or whatever, not, or like an uh, Apple laptop is maybe a better example. Uh-huh. They look distinctly different than non Apple laptops. True. They all look the same. <laughs> yeah. Is it hard to do that? I'm guessing it's hardest at the extreme ends almost, like bringing something like the blur and the V10 into the kind of overall design language. Yeah, that's a good point because the Blur is no longer a VPP bike. Yeah. And the V10, while it is VPP, it is like got its own weird thing going on. Um, we tried to actually make a V10 that looked like like like, like a Nomad, like uh-huh. a Nomad 5. It, it like fully didn't work. <laughs> it's just like you just can't do it. Um, like the, the way the V10 is, is the way it needs to be. Um, yeah, the Blur was a challenge because when we did that Blur, I actually worked on that project. And, you know, it was like, well, we can't, like the easy way out is like, well, if, if you have the same layout as all your other frames, you just make it kind of look like that. And like, you know, let's go off for a ride. That's done. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, it definitely was more of a challenge with the totally different layout. But I was worried about it at first, but I think we really pulled it off on the blur. I mean, I think if you have an unpainted blur with no logo on it, you could walk up to it and tell it looks like a Santa it, it You could tell it is a Santa Cruz uh-huh. 
not a tracker specialized or yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. You mentioned Trek. So as an industrial design expert, like how do you feel about the looks like a session comment? Like, yeah, well, that's a good question. Uh, some bike trivia here. I think, I think me and Chris started that ah. because when we, we worked on that, the very first opera, I don't, was it the very first operator? Yeah, it was the very first operator. I was trying to think if there's an operator before I got there. I think we did the very first operator and um, that bike, when it came out, I'm trying to remember, maybe like 2013, like the top pink bike comment was, it looks like a session, <laughs> like on the, on the you know, sneak peek uh, article, yeah. right? And I think that, and you know, that in that very first operator, I, I really like that bike. I think it was one of the nicest bikes I ever designed, which is funny because it's the first bike I ever designed. And I still love it. And I recently just got one because I never had one for the longest time. And I recently scored one. Sweet. Um, just as a wall hanger. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a really nice bike. But uh, it, that first operator was the first non-Kona stab downhill bike. And the stab looked quite a bit different than that. So when the operator went back to this more like less like crazy look with like kind of a normal size rocker link and you know kind of just like a more standard layout like you could say like a more boring layout i guess and i'm pretty sure that's where that whole trend started <laughs> on that pink bike first look everyone was like oh it just looks like a session now you know and, and as opposed to being this like really wacky looking thing with a giant rocker link yeah and uh so i'll take credit for that i guess nice <laughs> do you think it's a compliment being told your bike looks like a session these days like yeah i don't know like that's a good question i mean Oh, we always just thought it was funny. Like, and then I think we made stickers even. Somebody made stickers back then. Looked like a session stickers. Maybe it was Trek made them. I don't know. But <laughs> Excellent. But uh yeah, we always just thought it was funny. We loved it. <laughs> Good stuff, man. What what so what drove the choice to kind of move away from industrial design a bit and into the product management side of things and specifically into the e-bike world? Yeah, so like now uh we talk been talking about industrial design, but I am now um an e-bike product manager at Santa Cruz. Um, and I only started doing that a few months ago. And for me, the, I have been just like really into riding e-bikes since um, we kind of had some uh, at Santa Cruz. Um, and, you know, I've always been kind of like a downhiller and I always ride Whistler. I've been going to the Whistler bike park since the second year it, op it opened in 2000. I've been going there since 2001. Uh-huh. And I always try to avoid pedaling uphill as much as I can by riding lifts. And I'm just really like, for me, like riding bikes is the fun part is going downhill and I could care less about the fitness. Fit. Um, and, uh, that's why I try to ride chairlifts as much as I can. And then, so when we had a, when we started doing e-bikes at Santa Cruz, I actually worked on the Heckler eight, the first Heckler uh -huh. or the first e-bike Heckler. Um, we started having e-bikes to Santa Cruz. I just got into riding them and it took some getting used to it at first for sure. Yeah. And then just, you know, when the bullet came out, I got a bullet and like, I just love riding that bike all the time. That's all I want to ride ever. <laughs> so for me, like I was just really into riding the bullet a lot and just really into e-bikes generally. And like, there's a lot of fit people who work at Santa Cruz that are happy to pedal their non e-bikes all day long. I'm not one of those people. I like to ride my e-bike <laughs> and, uh, so when the opportunity came up to get more involved with the e-bike stuff, I was just, I'm just so into it. Like I was like, Oh, I, I want that opportunity. So like, hopefully they'll have me do it. And then the rest is history. So 
Um, yeah, I just like, it's been funny being out here riding a Morzine cause like I'll just pedal my e-bike and just do some gnarly pedal lap like in the morning and then work a little bit and then catch some chairlift laps in the afternoon and uh-huh. it's great. I love it. <laughs> Sounds pretty good to I me. just love putting in like heavy amounts of vert without having to pedal for three hours uphill. <laughs> it's pretty satisfying, right? Yeah. The irony is when we rode out to Morjean from Morzine to see the Tour de France, brought e-bikes, like I was saying, and uh, we did ride them on lifts, which was a little bit silly. Um, but hey, you know, got the, just got the job done. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Not the easiest things to lift on and off the lift. Yeah, like, wow. Yeah. Downhill bikes aren't either, really, are they, to be fair? So fair enough. How long have you been doing that now? Uh, just a few months on the e-bike stuff. Okay, so, pretty um, fresh That's then. a big reason why I'm over here in Europe, just trying to figure out what's going on and, and what, like, you know, getting more in touch with our Santa Cruz guys over here and what they want to see. So Yeah. How's it all evolving? Because it's an area that is moving, I would say, super fast, like faster than I've ever seen technology progress in the bike industry, really. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a really, I think, a really cool time to get into it because I think I don't, like, who knows what's going to happen, right? Like so far the way it's worked is sort of like the way everything else works on a bike is, you know, you kind of design around a vendor supplied motor and battery and you design your bike around that just like you would design around a vendor supplied fork. But I don't know, like maybe in the future stuff will be way more custom integrated. I don't know. I mean, Specialized is kind of doing that right now. No one else is. Yeah. And you know, like what's going to happen with battery technology and how they impact battery sizes. And, you know, I still think that like the bullets a super dialed bike, but like if you really like zoom out, there's probably so much that's going to happen with e-bikes and the next, I don't know, decade It's going to be wild. So, you know, I'm sure it'll be like the kind of thing when like, you know, like it'll be like disc brakes or like suspension forks where, you know, at the beginning of it, people were like, I don't know about this. It's kind of weird. And then like, no, I'm not saying everyone's going to be riding an e-bike, but the technology will has so far to go. So um, from where it is now, like the first suspension fork or the first disc brake. Yeah. Um, so it'll be cool to be, I'm like excited to be on the pointy end of that for sure. For sure. And the first e-bikes are pretty good. I mean, the first disc brakes and forks weren't. So yeah, actually, it's that's, a good stuff. Yeah, it's a good point. Like, yeah, like, you know, I'm... Yeah, those first suspension forks, I'm sure, were, like, pretty tragic. And, you know, like, you know, we're only on the on the bullet one for our e-bike. And the Heckler, you know, we've only on the second generation of Heckler. And, like, they're pretty great bikes as it is. So, yeah, yeah we don't have to, like, fight our way through a bunch of, of crap until we get it, get it right so far. It's only going to go up from here. So... But tricky though, because your job as a product manager is kind of to predict the future to some extent. Like, how far out are you working? Like, yeah, that's the other. That's the other weird thing about e-bikes versus a traditional bike. Because the way you would design or like a pedal bike, I always call them pedal bikes, but you do technically pedal e-bikes. Um, but anyway, <laughs> uh, I don't know what to call them. A normal bike, um, regular, a regular. The, bike. the way yeah. you would design a regular bike is you'd be like, okay, you know, the Bronson's been out for three years. It's like time to update it we got some new you know we have some new ideas about some stuff we want to put on the bronson and it's been a couple years so let's let's like work on the next bronson and then so that decision is made like totally independently of any kind of spec decisions yeah so it's like you do that and you're like oh whatever the coolest fork that rock shocks or fox has by the time the bike is ready we'll use that and whatever handlebars and whatever wheels we'll use those so those decisions are made like separately but with e-bikes uh 
you're it's much more like you need to see think about like who's coming out with what motor and when and like what battery and when and time your frame design around that so like all the people that make motors and batteries obviously are working on the next one always yeah. and you know you don't want to have your e-bike come out with brand x motor six months before brand x drops their gen 2 version of that motor so it is it is like much more tricky in terms of that so i'm saying i think that's something that every brand is trying to like navigate as well yeah and integration and packaging is so much more important and challenging maybe than on a let's inverted comma regular bike um because you're trying to fit so much stuff within the bike you're trying to get all these things and systems to work together that must be a big a big part of the puzzle as well, I guess. Yeah, it's 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 really tough. I mean, now we've done it a few times, so we're getting better at it for sure. But it's it's a huge challenge to work around the motor and the battery, for sure. Do you think your automotive background helps there? Because there's a lot more of that, like packaging integration work in the automotive world. Yeah, I think so for sure. Yeah, we we you know, especially on the stuff I was working on, that you have like no space to fit a bunch of stuff into. And that, that's just really not the case with a with a pedal bike because everything kind of hangs off the outside of a pedal bike. Yeah, you don't really put anything inside of it, you know, for the most part. Yeah, um, bottom bracket and a headset. Yeah, really, just like it. yeah, yeah. that's kind of it, like a seat tube, I guess. But that's kind of it. So, yeah. yeah, it's pretty tricky trying to trying to get it all to fit together for sure. Um, Interesting. What are your thoughts on this whole kind of lightweight e bike versus like? full power full battery capacity e-bike because there seems to be people pulling in two different directions there yeah i i i've been thinking about that a lot you know we don't have a lightweight e-bike um at santa cruz and you know there's the the levo sl i've actually ridden the levo sl quite a bit um i wrote i wrote one quite a, a good amount um like a year ago mm-hmm. or so and then you know there's this new brand new fazua ride 60 system which um is a 60 newton meter system where the Levo SL is 35 and for reference like a what you'd consider full power is 85 uh-huh. so the Levo's you know what like a third or a little bit more um than what you call consider a full power system and that Fazua system is you know like more like two-thirds what you consider a full power system so um I have gotten a chance to ride that Fazua ride 60 system just briefly, like kind of around a parking lot. Okay. But um, it seems pretty sweet. I don't know. It seems cool. Um, you know, Transition's going to have a bike coming out with it at some point. And yeah, um, yeah it seems great. And then, you know, it's, it seems like the other cool thing about those lightweight systems is they are much easier to package the rest of your bike around because that motor isn't so gigantic. So I, it seems really cool. Um, yeah, it'll be cool to properly try one out and see what it can do for sure yeah um, yeah the other interesting thing about riding e-bikes is i think anyone who's ridden an e-bike would know that like trying to find the most absurd stupid climb you can possibly <laughs> do is like a really fun thing to do yeah been and there. so i'd be curious to see what one of those lower torque system um does on that on that kind of riding um if that it works or not i don't know it's as much fun yeah <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun trying to get up stupid stuff on them that's yeah. for sure do you, do you think we'll get to a point where like e-bikes regular bikes lightweight full fat like where it all kind of narrows in and eventually there's like a a technology that's light enough has enough range that we just own one bike and they've got an e motor in and we choose whether we use it like 
Do you think we'll ever get to that point? It's probably going to be that, or it's going to be the exact opposite, uh-huh. which is where, like, brand, you know, bike company, whatever, has their range of pedal bikes, their range of lightweight bikes, and their range of full power bikes. And, you know, say you make like a, a 130, a 150, and a 180 bike in all three, and, and I don't know, maybe a hardtail or something like that. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it goes that way where, you know, you have, you have it, all of the things instead of one thing, or yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe in the future, lightweight e-bikes are so good that full power bikes become obsolete. And then you can ride your lightweight bike with the battery taken out and that works great. And that's what people do. I don't know. Like this, I think we're still so in the beginning of this whole situation that it's hard to say yeah i mean i guess from a bike company's perspective they'd like us to own more than one bike right yeah well i mean i don't think that's the bike company's problem i think people do that <laughs> no matter what <laughs> yeah true yeah if, if you're a bike company is like please only own one bike i think people would be like nice try <laughs> i'm keen to talk a little bit about like e-bike use and how that impacts the trails, the environment, and the riding communities, like in places that you're familiar with or places that you visited, like how are you seeing that playing out? Because I think it, it certainly seems to vary from one spot to another, and the response from people is is different everywhere. But like this, I'm just thinking about certain spots in the UK, there can be some resistance, but then there's other areas where already kind of 70 to 80% of the bikes you see out on the trail now are e-bikes. Yeah, um, I think, okay, so first of all, what I'm about to say is just like my own opinions, not the official opinions of IMBA or Santa Cruz or anyone. In my own personal opinion, it's it's a bit of a, a funny thing. I think it works in a lot of different ways where, at least for me on an e-bike, I ride way different spots than I would ride on a pedal bike. Okay. Um, so I'm like spreading my, like my skidding that's ruining the environment over many more like i'm not just always skidding in the same spot like on a pedal bike i wouldn't bother going to a lot of far-flung spots on the e-bike like i do on the e-bike because uh-huh. it's like the, it just wasn't worth that uphill for the for the downhill so i just like always ride in the same spot because i want to like maximize my my awesome time going downhill if i'm going to bother doing the uphill yeah and so i think it spreads people out quite a bit which i think probably helps both the like wear and tear on the trails, but also like, you know, like clogging up the trails with just traffic. Yeah. So, and in my experience, a lot of other people who ride e-bikes a lot are doing the same thing. They're like not going to the high traffic spots because it's like, I don't know, you can go wherever you want. Like, why would you, like you can find a really sweet trail that no one rides because the climb is really gnarly and you're not going to run into anyone in that suite. And I do a lot of that. I think the pro, like to me, the problem like the thing that's giving e-bikes more of a negative image than like more skids and like erosion because I don't really think that's a thing is just people like blowing by people on the trail. I yeah. think I've like, I've seen people do that and it like just really bums me out when like, you know, it's like a flat, maybe like a flat pedal or slightly uphill and just like people just like rip past people on e-bikes, like rip past people on traditional bikes and it's like, hey, man, you're the one who's, like, not putting the effort into this, <laughs> the guy on the e-bike. So it's like, maybe you should, like, you know, give a little priority to the guy who's, like, maxing out his heart rate. And um, so to me, it's like, I think when the e-bike started being a thing, people started worrying a lot about trail access because it's, like, this motorized vehicle. 
supposedly and that's like a trail access problem i think it's more about people like riding like a dick um than you know like the trails getting more ruined you know yeah yeah. because i don't that doesn't seem to really be a thing so but yeah i mean like i really like for me like getting out on the e-bike and just like not seeing any other people and just riding some weird like trail that just fully wouldn't be worth riding if you had to pedal for it and then when i still do ride my pedal bike i'll go ride the like you know like jumpy burmy machine built stuff because it's nice to ride not quite such a heavy bike when doing the jumpy burmy stuff and then like there'll be a lot of people there riding those trails but i don't really mind if i'm on the on the pedal bike like i would on the e-bike interesting and i think like it it definitely removes a barrier to entry to the sport of fitness which is really good like it opens the door to a lot of other people to come and have a go at a sport which is very awesome and that means that from a brand perspective there's potentially new customers and i've certainly seen in marketing from some of the bigger brands like the marketing feels very different to stuff i've seen in the past and i guess that's because they're talking to a non-core mountain bike audience maybe they're trying to attract people that aren't already mountain bikers like how do you think about that from your perspective in your role as product manager are you and and at sandscrews i guess which are maybe more of a core brand i don't know but like are you looking at what mountain bikers might want but also what new entrants into mountain biking via e-bikes might want does that make sense yeah totally i don't think we worry about that too much because like uh kind of getting back to what i was saying earlier we just sort of make the bikes we want to ride and we all aren't beginners for you know at least all all of us who work in in the on the product at santa cruz and so we just make the bikes we want to ride and you know we like our more performance oriented brand and our e-bikes started i don't know around five thousand dollars so we're not super worried about that Uh kind of segment of the market i think it's great that there there are brands who are tackling that segment of the market i don't think you know like mountain biking isn't just for cool people it should be for everyone and like everyone should get into mountain biking and you know that like pays my salary (laughs) and you know if at more people mountain bike that's more trails to get built for everyone to ride so like i don't want to be like you know a gatekeeper for mountain biking like every more the more people mountain biking the better it is for the rest of us in terms of trail access and you know the volume of stuff getting made make gets cheaper all that stuff yeah um but yeah, we're, you know, we're just not really like trying to play that game right now at Santa Cruz. So Fair play, not your style kind yeah. of thing. But, um, I think it's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's definitely, and, you know, I in. think that the art, the argument that people have like, oh, you know, with e-bikes, there'll be a lot more people on the trails and make the trails way more crowded with all these, these new people in the sport on e-bikes. I mean, like, I just don't see it. Like if you're riding gnarly trails, like you're not going to ride those regardless of what kind of bike you have if you're a beginner. So for sure. I don't think that argument holds a lot of water. Well, I have seen a couple try. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think and that's part of the the sport. It 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 it's easier to access on an e-bike. You don't need to be fit. But then you start seeing all the other things that we're all used to. Like we know we can look over the top of a trail and be like, oh yeah, okay. Maybe this is a bit much or whatever. But there's a lot of people that are coming in and learning that side of things like how to read a trail how to you know the fact that we do have to respect the trails because they can bite you like and you do see people get out of their depth on occasion i think which is it's interesting to see like 
I don't know, yeah, where the education comes from and how these people that are new to the sport get bought in in a safe and kind of good manner, right, to give everyone a good experience. Yeah, luckily they're always wearing full body armor, so you can always tell them apart. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. All right, what is exciting you in the bike world at the minute then? It doesn't have to be e-bike related. What's uh, what's kind of getting you frothing? Um, I think uh, I'm just... I got a uh, I got a bike set up with um, with Axis. What is it called? A- uh, flight attendant. Oh yeah. I have my Mega Tower set up with flight attendant and an Axis reverb and uh, derailleur. All the batteries. And uh, it's pretty fun. Like yeah. it's kind of silly, you know. Like I guess it fits. It's my personality as somebody who's into e-bikes. But um, like having all the gizmos, like I, I've been I've been riding that bike a bit. I know it's not an e-bike, but I've been riding the Mega Tower with the Axis suspension. And uh, it's pretty cool. Like it really works. Like, I mean, you know, it's like always locking itself out and unlocking itself. And, uh, you know, got the, the app with everything connected and like the wireless shifter and everything and, and Z-Post and... Uh, you know, it's it's a lot of gimmicks, but it's like it's pretty sweet. I don't know, it's cool. I dig it. Like I recently got that set up, so I'm into it. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I have heard good feedback on it. I've only had a fairly brief ride, and it. I mean, it seemed to work, but it was too short to really say much. Yeah, but. I mean, you know, I'm not like racing for every last second, but you know, it's it's so I just do it for fun, right? But it's it's a pretty fun setup. It's pretty. Is that making pedaling cool. the bike more enjoyable for you with not having to like? you know it's doing all the lockout stuff for you it's making it easier right yeah i mean like i am a person who always does hit my lockout switch on like a road climb uh-huh. or whatever um i i do use my lockout a fair amount like without access or whatever or a flight attendant um so yeah just having it do its little thing is uh is pretty cool and like it's funny when you're like you're like pedaling up a climb and your your bike's just like locked out and then you hit a little bump and it's not locked out. It's like, hey, let's do it. It's working. It's pretty clever, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty cool. I'm into that. It's like most recent thing I got going. Yeah. Um, also a big fan of Dyna plugs. Okay. Also, instead of bacon strips. I just used one yesterday and it's so fun to have it, grab it really quick and stick it in there and pull it out and not lose any air out of your tire as opposed to faffing with getting your bacon strips set up and by the time your bacon strip set up, your tire is flat. And I'm, I was like searching high and low where to buy Dyna plugs in Europe. I don't think they really have them here, but I found some on Amazon in Europe and bought them. <laughs> I, was out. I think there's a UK importer. Oh, nice. Fairly sure. Yeah. I've seen them kicking around, but not, yeah, not, not often. What about on the racing side of things? Do you follow it? Yeah, I follow world cup a bit. I mean, I think it's hard not to, uh-huh. um, but, uh, yeah, World Cup downhill for sure. Have you uh, have you had any thoughts on the Discovery takeover? Have you heard much about that? Yeah, I I, I talked to some some industry insider people that uh-huh. will remain nameless, um, and they seem kind of positive about it. So okay. uh, I, I'll take that as a good sign. They weren't like like oh shit's shit's fucked, man. Like <laughs> um, you know, they were like yeah, I think that'll be cool and probably shouldn't say a few things but i think i think everyone watching will be into it and as well so i'm not not too worried about it at good. all that um, is good to hear some positivity around yeah that. it was fun to be in morzine actually just watching the lenser hide because it actually happened during daylight hours not five in the morning and it's super fun to go go to rogers go to the back in morzine and watch it with a crowd of people who are also into it um you know i think that's why it's hard to it makes it difficult to be in the world cup racing living in the U S 
because you're always watching it by yourself in the four in the morning or like i don't get up at four in the morning i just watch like the recap later yeah but then you're always doing it by yourself so it's it's actually really fun to be in europe and go to a bar and uh watch it with other like-minded people cool and re- like, rumors of more north american based racing in the future as part of the discovery thing which has got to be good right because there's a huge audience there yeah man it'd be so cool to get a west coast uh downhill world cup back but just hopefully not at mammoth but <laughs> <laughs> who knows but man that'd be so killer i mean there's so much west coast industry you know between santa cruz and fox and specialized and bel giro and all the guys up in the northwest you know like that would that would make a lot of sense yeah one day i'm sure it'll happen we're getting close to the end of our time before we hit our final four questions that we hit everyone with just give us your thoughts on kind of the best ways for people to approach getting involved with the industry you mentioned kind of that network side of things was a good a good in for you yeah that that worked like i've had multiple people hit me up on linkedin and just like kind of similarly like oh i'm a student like hey i want to like have this job like what should i do and like i try to write those people back um but you know like maybe just troll linkedin is like a good way to like just figure out who did what and where um and you know just riding with people and putting it out there that you're trying to do something and maybe if you live somewhere with some industry that works and i think the other thing people forget is that um you know there's like obviously engineers and designers and product managers who work at bike companies but there's like hr people and finance people and say like obviously sales people and marketing people and you know like they all work at bike companies too so <laughs> it's like you don't have to be in, you know like an engineer you can be like an hr person who's really into biking and like get a job in the bike industry so i think i think i think people kind of forget that sometimes uh, yeah or like you know you don't have to be a pro rider to get paid to ride your bike you can work in finance and like go on lunch rides <laughs> yeah and be part of it all yeah yeah exactly sure. nice one well yeah we'll hit our final four questions the first one of those is if our listeners had 150 pounds which at the current abysmal exchange rate is about 178 dollars or something i think to improve their performance on a bike what would you recommend they go spend it on yeah i knew you're gonna ask me this and i was thinking about it today on the airplane flying over here and i decided that i think bigger brake rotors is the move okay because i think you could get two bigger brake rotors for that amount of money yeah and just buy two 220s and put them on your bike and see what happens it's not not a big investment and like you'll probably be stoked that's what I do, especially on an e-bike, but even not on an e-bike, like a downhill bike or whatever, unless you're riding a cross-country bike, I suppose. Just get two 220 brake rotors and the adapters and you'll be stoked. <laughs> yeah. What are your thoughts? Because the, like, the tradition was always to have a smaller rotor on the back, um, which seems to be starting to go away. But what are your thoughts on that? Like, I always from- used to do that too. I used to have like a 180 on my downhill bike, like back in the day when that was a thing. And uh, I don't know, I just go dual 220 all the time and it seems to be the best thing there is so um but you know it's like an easy experiment like buy two 20s and buy two 220s and the adapters and try it and if it's lame like sell one of them sell the rear one to your buddy and keep your front one or you know it's like an easy experiment you can do without it's not like upgrading your fork and then not liking it and being like oh crap i spent a thousand bucks and it's not going to be lame yeah yeah. You're just going to have a better break. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, I think. That's the move. That's yeah. what I do. All right. I like it. We've never had that. That's a, that's a unique uh, answer and a good one. I like it. Second one, if you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him? Yeah, I don't know. But it's it's a trippy one. I have thought about that too because I remember riding bikes 
when I was 16 with uh, Sam Burkhart, who's the product manager at Transition now. And I was like 16 and he was like 18. And then like years ago, I was like, hey man, isn't it weird we both work in the bike industry? And he was like, no, not really, because we're both really into bikes. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess I never thought of it like that. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, this doesn't really answer your question, but like, I don't know, it's, I thought it was weird that I work in the bike industry, right? <laughs> but like, apparently if you're like really into biking when you're 16 and you end up working in the bike industry, it's not that weird. <laughs> I guess it makes sense, right? You just, you follow in your, your passion. Sometimes it takes a while to get there, but. Yeah, so I don't, maybe that's the advice, like follow your passion, I guess, but like, yeah, I don't know. I never like consciously thought about that until he was like, no, I don't think that's weird. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, maybe it isn't weird. <laughs> was it a big like click for you when you moved from like automotive or the less exciting engineering jobs in your mind to, to the bike world? Was it instantly like, oh, I'm at home here. This is right. Or. Yeah. I mean, I mean like, you know, just like everyone who gets a job in the bike industry, day one, you have zero experience. And I had zero experience on day one at Kona. And like, they're like, you're going to design the operator. And I was like, sweet, let's do it. You know, I wasn't like, what do I do? <laughs> or I mean, I definitely was a little bit, but you know, it was like, you know, like I felt like I knew what I was doing to some degree, just being, having been so into bikes. Fair enough. But did it, I mean, more did it feel like exciting, comfortable? Was it everything you wanted? Like, had you gone from being maybe not so happy with your job into being like, oh, this is the best thing ever? Oh yeah, like 100% yeah. for sure. I mean, you can't, I mean, like hopefully no one hears this, but I probably do this job for free. So. <laughs> <laughs> Shh, don't, don't tell Santa Cruz. All right, next question. If you could have a coaching session from anyone, past or present, who would it be and what would you want to learn from them? I don't know. Who would I get coached by? I mean, like, it's it's easy to be like, oh, like, go with some legendary dude, like, uh, you know, like Tall Mac or something, or do you go with, like, a new school guy? I don't know. Like, it'd be funny. Maybe, you know, I, I, I'd go with maybe uh amory Pirion, just because he's like he seems like a wacky dude and like he's about to crash all the time which would be kind of hilarious so i just go for entertainment value rather than like <laughs> i'm actually gonna get faster riding from this guy because uh yeah i was like how how do you ride your bike like you're like literally crashing but like you then you don't crash which to me would be more fun thing to try to get somebody to teach me than like i don't know some someone who's like more serious and is like, okay, this is what you do. <laughs> I think, I think you'd have a fun day out with Amory Pierre. Yeah. That'd be fun. Guy knows how, knows how to enjoy himself for sure. Yeah. Nice so. one. All right. Last one. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Uh, well, I mean, this is probably the most cliche answer, but trying to just get out on the bike, you know, like I don't ride nearly as much as I would like to. Uh -huh. So just trying to make that a goal of getting on the bike. And I think the e-bike makes it a lot easier because then you can just be like, I've only got an hour and I'm still going to like hammer out a 1500 foot lap. Um, but yeah, getting out on the bike for sure is sometimes it takes a lot of motivation, but try to make it happen. <laughs> Especially when it's wet. That's the yeah. wet and cold is the yeah. hardest thing to drag yourself out in. Yeah, totally. And then so. the cleanup operation afterwards. Yeah. Uh, that Like honestly, if it wasn't for the cleanup operation, I'd probably do it a lot more riding the wet. <laughs> it's like the worst part. <laughs> you just, yeah, you need someone to clean your bike for you. Yeah, right, right. All <laughs> well, those Tour de France guys, they probably have that. Yeah, <laughs> and they've, they've got pretty much everything, I think. Yeah. Nice one, man. Well, it's been super interesting chatting. If people want to find out more, are you a social media kind of guy? Are they better off 
having a look at Santa Cruz or yeah, you can probably go to SantaCruzBikes.com, I imagine, yeah. or is it Santa Cruz Bicycles? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really post anything interesting on my Instagram. All right, um, unfortunately, <laughs> fair enough. Well, I'll stick links to the Santa Cruz website and their Instagram in the links. And yeah, look forward to seeing what's more to come from uh, Santa Cruz's e-bike collection as it no doubt expands. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to figure out what it is too. I'll I'll also be looking forward to it. (laughs) Nice one. All right, cheers, Jack. Cool, talk to you later. All right, that's it for this episode with Jack. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. If you want to check out the entire range of bikes from Santa Cruz, then you can do that over at santacruzbicycles.com. A big thank you to Layat for supporting this episode. Layat's entire range of helmets come equipped with their patented 360 turbine technology to help protect you against the multitude of different impact scenarios that you might experience. You can check out the entire range online at layat.com or find them in your local stockist or online. Also, a big thank you to Magura for supporting the show. The Magura MT7 Pros are genuinely the best brakes I've ever used. And what's more, you can use the Magura Customize Your Brake options to get the perfect setup for you when it comes to performance, aesthetics and ergonomics. Head over to Magura.com now and check them out. Here's a few other links that might be useful to you too. Downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Forward slash shop to support the show by getting yourself some merch. And forward slash EP if you want to get your hands on copies of our lovely print project, Downtime EP. As always, spread the word and make sure as many people as possible are listening. That's it for today. We're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride.